Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing through our walk through the Sermon on the Mount. And I don't know, have you learned anything yet? Hopefully, it's been a help to you. I sure have as I'm preparing these and uh, certainly learn a lot from uh, studying God's Word. But we're in Matthew chapter 5 today. Diane Fittipaldi told municipal court judge Levi Grantham that she did what she did because of her long-time feud she was having with her husband. Oliver is a horrible neat freak, Fittipaldi said. He drives me nuts about keeping everything tidy. The couple had argued about the proper placement of table place settings, specifically forks, where they go and how they're laid out. I don't know if you ever argued about anything silly, but that was pretty silly. So Fittipaldi rented a 3,000-pound pneumatic forklift, and she drove it through the front wall of their one-story frame house. According to neighbors who witnessed the incident, she used the machine to smash the dining room table. Neighbors, uh, uh, wait, uh, she said this later, Oliver yelled at me about where his fork was supposed to go. I figured I'd fix it with a forklift. Neighbors said Fittipaldi seemed wild-eyed during the attack. She she kept screaming, take this fork at her husband, who was hiding in the kitchen at the time. That's a true story. Now, there's several morals to that story. First of all, never marry a woman who knows how to operate heavy machinery. That's one thing you can take away from it. And then don't let your conflicts get to this level. Today... We're talking about relationships. Our lives are composed of various relationships with people. And how we handle those relationships determine our happiness and the sorrow that we have in our life. Relationships with people are vital, especially the ones with your spouse, your parents, your kids, your family. However, the absolute most important relationship of all is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the one that we, of course, always focus on number one. When you reject Him or neglect Him, your life begins to fall apart. But we have a Bible, and it instructs us on how to have a great relationship with God and a relationship with people as well. This is the type of passage we're going to read today. So if you'll start with me at verse number 21, Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said of them by old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother have aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way first. Be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift." Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Father, we ask you to use this, your word this morning. Help us to learn how to better navigate our relationships. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to preach this morning on murder and relationships. Murder and relationships. 
Our text that we just read is one of the foundational passages on human relationships in the Bible. Jesus begins with the ultimate destruction of human relationships that takes place through murder. Then he goes on uh, beyond the mere preservation of life uh, to the preserving of human relationships. He describes how a righteous person would conduct his or her relationships with others. And we get a view of what destroys relationships with people, and then in turn, this destroys our own lives. So let's look at it, break it down as it's given. We look first at the issue of murder. Uh, Jesus said we're not to kill other people. That's a pretty standard. We agree with that, don't we? Now, obviously, murder is a pretty bad relationship killer. Wouldn't you say? If you murder somebody, you've really put a dent in that relationship. So he says, don't murder. He's not saying it's wrong to kill animals for food. He's not saying that it's wrong to go to war or defend yourself against an enemy. The Old Testament is filled with examples where God uh, allows that and, and uh, for, for self-defense and also going to war. He's not saying that capital punishment or the death penalty is wrong. Leviticus chapter 20 uh, gives a whole list of capital crimes. And six times in Numbers 35, uh, it states plainly that the murderer is to be put to death. What's referred to here is the unsanctioned killing of one human by another human. Thou shalt not kill. We are not to murder one another. Okay, so that we pretty much agree with. Secondly, we move to the issue of anger. Jesus didn't want people to refrain just from murdering one another. See, murder is the external manifestation of an internal problem. So God is always, always concerned with what's going on in our hearts more than he is about our actions because our actions come from what's in our heart. What's in the well comes up in the bucket. And so what's inside will come out. And simply reframing from homicide does not constitute you righteous in God's eyes. That's what he's trying to say here. He talks about anger. And anger is such a foolish thing. It makes us destroyers instead of builders. It robs us of our freedom. It makes us prisoners of our own bitterness. Anger leads to hate. And to hate someone is to commit murder in our hearts. That's right. That's what the Bible says. In fact, to hate a brother in the Lord biblically is unthinkable. Listen to what it says in 1 John 3.15. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. That's pretty plain language, isn't it? And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. So let's do an object lesson here today. I was a little nervous. I hope we don't have any murderers here, but how many have murdered somebody lately by the raise of your hand? Okay, Whew, good. We have a safe crowd here this morning. Okay, so nobody has murdered anybody here lately. Um, now, let me ask you another question, and let's be honest. Okay, there's nobody here but us. Uh, we're not going to share this with anybody else. Let's just be honest before the Lord this morning. How many of you ever have you hated someone lately? A flash of hatred. Keep, put your hands up. Let's be honest, okay? If you're not raising your hand, you're probably lying or you're the person the rest of us are hating, okay? It could be one of the two. <laughs> Keep your hand up. How many of you hated someone lately? We've had that thought, that flash of hatred. Keep them up. Keep them up. How many of you murdered someone lately? Ah, ah, ah don't you dare put your hand down. No, no, no. According to the Bible, we hate somebody. We've murdered them. And we oughtn't hate people. I, I've had to struggle uh, not to hate somebody that's even here this morning, this, uh, that, that's in the middle of this, uh, our service this morning. 
the Americans have been on a cruise, and I've had to stay here in, in South Dakota, and so I've had to work on my attitude against them. It's good to have them back today. But we ought not hate somebody. The Jews of Jesus' time knew that murder was forbidden by God. Pretty much everyone still agrees with that assessment. We ought not kill another human being. But with the words that Jesus says, but I say unto you, he adds an amendment to the murder uh, restriction, to the teaching on murder. No longer can a person just take pride and say, I have never killed anybody. I've never committed murder. No longer can you stand on that alone. Here, the Lord again, like we talked about last week, Jesus always raised the standard, always, when it came to the Sermon on the Mount or his preaching. So grace always goes beyond the law. And he says here that beyond thou shalt not murder, we ought not hate. Now let me say that we let's not think that Jesus forbids all anger with other people. It is possible for humans to be angry and not sin, Ephesians 4, 25. Uh, 26, I'm sorry. Jesus himself was angry with when he cleansed the temple. You remember that story in John 2? He was angry with those that assailed him for healing on the Sabbath, Mark chapter 3. Uh, here's the caveat, though. Jesus was always angry at sin and injustice. He never got angry at personal insult and personal offense. That's what separates us from Jesus. We're very quick to be uh, angry at people who insult us or offend us. We're not so quick to be angry at, uh, at, at injustice or uh, against uh, things that are done against God. First Peter 2.23, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. This was Jesus. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. When people offended Jesus personally, he was not angry. But when they offended God or offended those he loved, uh, then that was he had righteous anger. Now, in the Greek, there's two words for the word anger. Uh, it, I've talked about this before. Languages sometimes, when you learn a different language, uh, sometimes uh, one language only has one word and another has more that, that define a little bit more. Well, the Greek has two words for anger. The first is thumos. This is described as a flame that comes from dried straw. It flares up and then it quickly dies out. It's the anger that blazes up quickly and then just as quickly dies down. Every year in America... An average of 15 men are killed by pop machines after not receiving a drink or their correct change they begin to shake it they're angry they begin to kick it and then sometimes the machine falls over crushing them injuring them killing 15 of them a year that's something what's happening there is each man becomes a victim of his thumos or his temper Interestingly enough, when they did that study, they found only one time was a woman injured, but no woman had ever been killed, because usually women are a little bit better when it comes to this idea of temper, okay, than men are. But the second word for anger is the word ogre. And it was, that's the uh, idea of a long-lived anger. It's the man who nurses his anger and lets it grow and uh, turning into bitterness. It's the anger of the person that broods and will not allow it to die. It just keeps it alive uh, he or she, in their hearts. On Mother's Day of 1987, Percy Washington killed the wrong woman. He and his wife, Corrine, had been married for 29 years, and then just the prior year had, uh, had separated. And the 61-year-old became angry with his estranged wife. They accused her of taking advantage of him. So the day before this time in question, he went out and he bought a shotgun, and he went to her church 
and he waited for her. And when the service was over, he waited for his wife to get in her car, and then he leveled the shotgun and fired through the windshield. But there was a problem. He had forgotten his glasses, and he shot a woman that he mistook for his wife. Fanny Watson was driving a similar car, and so he just assumed she was his wife. After his arrest, he said this to the officers, I'm sorry about the other woman. I meant to kill my wife, but I forgot my glasses. But I got to tell you, friend, anger blinds us to reality, regardless of whether or not we wear glasses. Anger will blind you, and it will ultimately kill you and make you miserable, and it will also hurt innocent people around you. Jesus forbids the anger that it can be so destructive to our serving God. James chapter 1, verse 20, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. There is no place uh, for anger in our heart. There is a place for righteous anger, but no place for uh, anger of personal offense in our heart. The contrast of this anger is perfectly illustrated in the life of Moses. Let me give you two examples in Moses' life that illustrates this perfectly. He got angry in Psalm 106.33. It says, because they provoked his spirit. He was personally offended so that he spake unadvisedly with his lips. This is referring back to Numbers chapter 20, verse 10. And he used a word that we're going to talk about in a minute. Remember this word. Uh, we're going to talk about moros. He used mara. And he says this. Here now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And if you remember the story, he hit the rock, water came out for the people. But because he got angry, because they provoked his spirit, and he got angry and lost his temper, he was not allowed to go into the promised land. God kept him out of the promised land because of that outburst. Now, something else happened uh, later in Exodus chapter 32. After he receives the Ten Commandments, Moses comes down off the mountain, and you know the story. Uh, he, they, he came down to a scene of sensuality and idol worship. And in Exodus chapter 32, verse 19, listen to this. His anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and break them beneath the mount. Well, wait a second. He's so mad at what he sees he takes the very rocks the Ten Commandments were written on by the finger of God, and he threw them down and broke them into a thousand pieces. Now, whew, he's in big trouble now, isn't he? No, not at all. In Exodus 34, 1, God says, okay, pick two more rocks, I'll write them on them again. It was no big deal uh, to the Lord. He didn't get in trouble for that anger because he was angry on the, on, he had righteous anger. He was angry because the people had offended God. And here's the difference between righteous anger that Jesus had and the anger that we have. We get angry when somebody says something about us. We get angry when we're offended. And then we start to hate and beget bitterness. Oh, the pain of anger. Uh, anger is only one letter short of danger. And if you have anger in your life, you're very close to danger. Then number three, we have the issue of abusive words. Jesus deals here with offensive and insulting language. He expands... The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, to include our tongue. The Bible calls our tongue a weapon of war. We can cause a lot of damage with our tongue. You ever heard that? Uh, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Whoever said that was, I can't say stupid because I'm about to preach against that, uh, was uninformed, okay? Words do hurt us. So, the Aramaic word here, he talks about the word raka. If whosoever shall say to his brother raka shall be in danger of the council. <clears throat> now, this literally means empty. Empty-headed man. 
Does anybody here know an empty-headed man? Okay, good, you're passing the test. That's good, not one hand was raised. That's a trap, isn't it? It was a trap. Shouldn't think that about your president anyway. To call somebody empty-headed, numbskull, nitwit, blockhead, bonehead, even idiot, this is forbidden in the Bible. But raka used in its truest form is to treat somebody like a nobody. That's what raka really means. Uh, it's an utterly derisive term that belittles the value of another person or the worth of that person. It is when we treat someone as beneath us or worthless. We're somehow better, and so we look down our noses at them. Raka. This is the very opposite of the heart for the harvest that we're asking and imploring you to have this year. We cannot have a heart for the harvest while we look down on the harvest. And this is the idea behind raka. The term fool... Uh, the Greek word is moros. It's where we get our word moron, okay? It's the meaning here is not so much about a person's IQ as it is about a person's moral condition. It applied to those who deny God and those who pursue evil. It was used in secular Greek literature as an obstinate, uh, to describe an obstinate, godless person. It was also related to the Hebrew merid, which means to rebel against, which is the word that Moses used when he struck the rock. So Moses did exactly what Jesus said here. We should not look at our, our somebody and look at them, look down on them and call them a fool, call them a moros, call them a merid as it was in the Old Testament, and it cost Moses his trip into the promised land. It's a serious business is what God's trying to tell us here. To call someone a fool is to accuse them of being stupid and godless. It is to call, uh, not to criticize their mental ability, but malign their moral character. It was to brand him as a loose living and immoral person. It basically expresses the wish that he was dead, and that's why Jesus said is just as bad as murder. But here's what it really is doing. When we look at somebody with raka or uh, moros or fool, this is what we're doing, practically speaking. We are removing them in our mind from being a candidate for God's grace. And that's spiritual murder. Have we ever done that with anybody? Let's be honest, we have, haven't we? We look at somebody and say, no, they're beyond God reaching them. They're beyond help. And yet, we should not have that attitude. The two words, raka and fool, are terms of absolute contempt, and Jesus here condemns it. There is no sin quite so anti-God as the Spirit of contempt. This is, there's a contempt and a, an arrogance that comes from the pride of our birth, our, maybe our race or our creed, and that is godless. There's a contempt that comes from our position and money where we despise the less fortunate, and that is a godless attitude. There is a contempt that comes from knowledge. We, uh, know it all types, and, uh, those, I think, uh, you ever seen a scientist, an atheist scientist who talks about creation? with a curl of their lip and contempt in their voice, uh, how utterly raka and foolish creationists are. That's the kind of contempt that we're talking about here. Now, why does God hate this so much? This is important, friends, because it is completely and antithetical to His heart. It is, you could not get more opposite of God's heart than to have contempt for your fellow human man. He has love for them. There is no raka, a fool, coming from him. Remember the Pharisee and the publican in Luke chapter 18? The Pharisee, verse 11. Oh God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Wow, how could you even pray that? Can you imagine the utter arrogance? I thank thee that I am not as other men are, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this publican points over to the publican. Basically, what he's saying there is raka, worthless, fool, stupid, godless. Thank you that I am not like him. Meanwhile, over here, the publican, he was so ashamed of his sin, he wouldn't even look up, and he couldn't uh, lift his eyes up, and he was smoting his breast, and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, he went home justified. Not the one who looked at him with contempt and scorn. Oh, friends, we have to be so careful that, uh, that, 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 that we don't have that self-righteousness of that Pharisee. It is infinitely better to be a humble servant than it is to be, or, I'm sorry, a humble sinner than it is to be a self-righteous saint. We should never look at contempt to any man that Jesus Christ died for, and that's every man that's ever lived. All as believers, we have to purge ourselves of any delusion of spiritual superiority. It is all too easy for us to see ourselves as some spiritual giant looking down on the rest of mankind as foolish humanity. Beware of the attitude that says, I am better than you. Oh, that's such a terrible, uh, it's a killing attitude as far as Christianity goes. We're not better than anybody. We're blessed. (laughs) Maybe God has, like we sang before, lifted us out of the pit, set us on on a rock, and given us a better life, we are blessed, but we're not better than anyone else. Oh, that contempt. If there's anyone who ought to know who and what they are, it's God's people, it's Christians. We must never inflate our value and devalue others around us. Romans 12, 3 says, Every man ought not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Notice the sin of Raka, this condescending contempt, is liable to severe judgment. We are never to demean the value of people, no matter who they are. Now, then we get to the issue of the altar here. It's interesting. Look what it says in verse number 24. Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and come and offer thy gift. Now, what it talks about in the verse before, Jesus is really getting down to the nitty-gritty here of human relationships. This is important because sometimes, here's what we do. Despite the fact that we offend God or we have a, we have a, a bad relationship with another brother and sister in Christ, we think that we can somehow uh, rack up brownie points with God by doing good things and by going to church and by uh, just whether we're teaching a Sunday school class or all the things that we're doing, we're racking up points with God. But we, we better not think that we can gloss over our offenses here. Jesus gives us a phenomenal picture here of a worshiper that has entered the great temple with his sacrifice. He has already passed three three courts, the court of men, the court of women. He's uh, passed the court of, of the Gentiles. Beyond him lays the court of the priests into which only the priests could pass. The worshiper now stands at the threshold. He's about to go in and give. He's got his offering, his sacrifice in hand, and suddenly he remembers he's offended his brother. And he takes, uh, he turns back, retreats past all those great courts. He must first make things right with his brother. That's the picture we have in that verse. Now, Jesus' point is clear. It is far more important to be reconciled to your brother than to fulfill the external duties of worship. Because worship is only, listen, worship is only make-believe if you have something, if you have aught between a brother or sister in Christ. It's a... you, you can't nurse grudges and worship at the same time. God is not impressed with our sacrifices 
when we do not make any effort to make right those things, the people we have wronged. The matters of the heart are so much more important to Him than the outward religious rituals. The Lord wants our heart because when He has your heart, then He has you. He has a right relationship when He has your heart. 2 Corinthians 8, 5, And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave of their own selves to the Lord. If we're going to grow spiritually and be used of God, let's make sure that our lives are right with God and man. Jesus is quite clear that we cannot be right with God until we're right with man. It's more important for us to lift the load of hate from another person's shoulders uh, than it is for us to engage in some formal act of worship. This is, a, this is really strong language coming from the Lord. we, we got to understand, religious ritual was very important to the scribes and the Pharisees and the Jews of Jesus' day. And to hear this come from you, what? i got to leave my religious ritual and go make something right with my brother, who's probably a jerk anyway? Mm-hmm. That's what Jesus is saying. The importance of relationships. Acts 24, 16 And herein do I exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. What basic steps does it take for us to reconcile with another person? So we kind of looked at the importance of reconciling. What do we do? What steps do we take? Now, I understand, and there's people like this in my life and in my past too. There's some people that are not open to reconciliation. I understand that. If you're here today and you have ought between someone and you've done what you could on your part, you're not who I'm talking to. I'm talking about people who ignore that and go forward with it. Uh, we, I, there's some people you can't reconcile with because they're just not open to it. I get that. But to try to reconcile takes some consideration. Because if there's a problem, we have to consider it a priority to reconcile. Jesus makes this clear in verse number 24. He says it's more important than going to church. It's more important than tithing. It's more important than sacrificing. It's more important than anything by the picture that he gave there. And then it also takes commitment and courage. Two porcupines in Canada, cold northern Canada, are huddled together uh, to stay warm. But their quills keep pricking one another. So they move apart. But when they move apart, now they're getting cold again. So they move together again, and now they're pricking each other again. So the, but they're warmer, so they move apart. Now they're getting cold again, and this just happens over and over and over. They needed each other, but they kept needling each other. That's us, isn't it? We need each other, but sometimes we needle each other too. And what do we do in that situation? It's in those times that our commitment to the relationship becomes essential. Commitment uh, is, is a catalyst in keeping people together. This is what's, what keeps marriages together. Marriages stay together by commitment to one another. And our uh, commitment will help us to reach out to those that we've offended or uh, are angry with us. It helps us to overlook and forget the weaknesses and the offenses of others toward us. Reconciliation, listen to me, is not weakness and it is certainly not cowardice. Reconciliation is for the strong. Reconciliation is for the... It takes courage to reconcile. It takes love and meekness. That's something that cowards can't conjure up. So don't think it's a sign of weakness. So there's consideration, commitment, and then there's concern. Our concern for others <coughs> helps us see our offenses from their perspective. This can help us to see our need to correct those wrongs between people. And then there's confession. We should be quick to confess our fault to the one that's offended and seek forgiveness. James 5.16, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. 
Maybe one or more of your relationships needs some healing. It talks about that in the Bible. And then a cooperative spirit. Jacob had a spirit of humility when he confronted Esau after years of being apart. If we've wronged others, we certainly must have a humble attitude, not a defensive one. Can I tell you that humility in your heart leads to God's exalting you in the future? James 4.10, humble yourselves in the sight of God and He will lift you up. Instead of trying to build yourself up, if you're humble, He lifts you up. And then communication. Oh, isn't this a big part of a relationship? Communication. Reconciliation involves talking conflicts and difficulties out with others. Christians are not to close the door of communication when there's an offense. We're to leave that door open for constant uh, communication and reconciliation. Now, unwillingness to do this reveals a bitter spirit. We see it. You've experienced it. I've experienced it numerous times in church. Hey, can I meet with you? No, not interested in talking to you or not interested in talking to them. That's a bitter spirit on their part. But we ought to always be willing and make an effort uh, to have that communication. The ultimate test of a relationship is the ability to disagree but hold hands while we're doing it. People may be offended by your position. Make sure they're not offended by your disposition. That's a big difference there. And then there's compassion. That cartoon strip, uh, Peanuts, the Peanuts cartoon strip, has a lot of little life lessons once in a while. Well, one of them was uh, Lucy talking to Snoopy. And Lucy said, there's times when you really bug me. But then there's other times when I feel like giving you a big hug. And Snoopy says, that's the way I am. Huggable and buggable. And most of us are just like that, aren't we? We're huggable, but sometimes we're buggable. And, and, and uh, Scripture teaches us that we should not only forgive those that wrong us, but to love them. Romans 12, 21, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. The Bible says if we're offended, we're to go to the offender and endeavor to reconcile our differences. Matthew 18, 15, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and uh, him alone. That's important. It has nothing in Matthew 18, 15 about social media. It's between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. And finally, the issue of agreement. Look at verse number 25. Agree with thine adversary quickly, while thou art in the way with him, lest at any time thine adversary delivered you to the judge. <coughs> Jesus tells us to get our relationships repaired in time before it piles up and becomes more serious. Jesus paints a picture here of two opponents on their way to the courthouse. And he's telling them, get it settled before you get to court. Because if you get to court, the judge might make one or more of your lives infinitely more difficult than it is now. So get it settled before you even get there. <clears throat> if Jesus is saying, if you're wrong, be quick to admit it. Be quick to uh, own up and make things right. If a dispute is not healed immediately, it will snowball and get worse every time. As a young preacher, I made this mistake many times. I would think, oh, there's a problem there, but it'll blow over. It doesn't ever blow over. You've got to deal with it. Sometimes a quarrel between two people filters into their families, and many other people get involved in the feud. We, I think of the Hatfields and the McCoys, who for generations fought and killed one another, and it all led back, I think, to a pig that somebody stole. It's ridiculous. 
But listen, in the very beginning, if someone has enough character to humble themselves and apologize, then many lives can be spared. It's the same way in our Christian life. How sad when this comes into our church. Unfortunately, church feuds are not uncommon. Now, I'm glad, especially in light of the story I'm going to tell you next, I'm glad that I get along really well with our song leader. Even at his advanced age, we're good friends and we get along well. (laughs) But one pastor and the song leader had a big tiff and chaos followed. One week the pastor gets up and he preaches on commitment, how you should dedicate yourselves to serving God and serving in the church. The song leader then got up and led the congregation in singing, I shall not be moved. The next Sunday, the preacher preached on how giving, we should give uh, toward the church. We should give in our tithes. we got to be faithful in our giving and give cheerfully because the Lord loveth a cheerful giver. The song leader then led the congregation in singing, Jesus paid it all. The next Sunday, the preacher preached on gossiping and how we should watch our tongues and not talk about one another and spread stories. And the hymn that day was, I love to tell the story. The preacher was so disgusted. The next Sunday, he finally told the congregation he was considering resigning. The song leader got up and led the congregation, why not now? Why not now? (laughs) The next week, the preacher resigned, and he told the church, Jesus has led me here, and now Jesus is leading me away. The song leader got up and led the singing, what a friend we have in Jesus. (laughs) Look, church conflict is never good. And Jesus stresses the urgency of agreement or reconciliation. If we're ever in a conflict with someone else, we must get the situation remedied as soon as we possibly can. It may mean humbling yourself. And friend, that's okay. It's all right. What does the Bible say earlier in our Beatitudes? Blessed are they that are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength. And it does. a coward isn't meek. Weaklings aren't meek. Uh, It is uh, mature Christians who are able to humble themselves and be meek. In my experience, when relationships suffer, nine times out of ten, immediate action can restore them. But if we hold off, it only gets worse. If that immediate action is not taken, the relationship begins uh, continues to deteriorate. And that's why Paul stressed the importance of urgent. Urgent reconciliation, what he said in Ephesians 4, 26. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Don't even let it go till the end of the day. Deal with it now, he said. Another way you could look at verse 25 here uh, that we just read is get things right with your fellow man while life lasts because someday you know not when life will finish and you're going to stand before God, the final judge. If you, know, if you are here today and you do not know Christ as your Savior, You need to be reconciled with God. Your sin has separated you from the Lord, and that is the most important relationship in your life. But for those of us who have accepted Christ into our life, Paul stresses the urgency uh, of taking care of these things today because he says in James 4.14, Whereas you know not what your life shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even as a vapor that appeareth for a little while and then vanisheth away. Let me ask you, dear Christian, Have you murdered anyone lately? We said, no, no, not me. I've murdered anybody. The Bible says if we hate another, guilty of murder. How are your relationships? 
Is there anyone you need to get right with today? If there is, I guarantee you, as I've been talking, the Holy Spirit's been knocking on your door. He's been putting that name in your mind. Whoever that is, we need to deal with that. Uh, Jesus put a high standard on your relationships. We ought not take them lightly. The Carnegie Technology Institute has stated that 90% of all people who fail in their life's vocation fail because they cannot get along with people. Let's not let that be the story of our church. Amen? By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have a short haircut, if you wear a long skirt as a lady. No, no, no. If you have love for one another. And do we have love for one another? I'll tell you what will kill it. Murder. Hatred. Bitterness. Jesus put a high value on relationships. We ought to, too. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. The challenge today, dear friend, is very clear. How are your relationships? <clears throat> is there somebody right now that you need to get right with? Maybe it's somebody that you've tried to get right with and they're just not open to it. And you, All you can do is pray for them. All you can do is love them. And that's okay. But uh, on your side, your heart needs to be free of bitterness and free of hatred. While she begins to play and you stand along with me, heads bowed, eyes closed, uh, I, I just